Clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats, usually and thankfully acronymed as CRISPR, are DNA sequences found in some organisms. And they're notable because they are basically genetic leftovers from when a bacteriophage, which is a type of virus that infects and then melds with bacteria and archaea, melded with those organisms. And these sequences allow that bacteriophage to find and kill the DNA of other bacteriophages that try to break into that organism's genes like they did. So these creatures, these bacteriophages, throughout a decent chunk of the history of organic life, have glommed onto other creatures, been absorbed into them, adding their DNA to the infected creature's DNA. And when they do this, this type of genetic sequence allows them to do a kind of find and delete function on that creature's genes the one they've melded with, so that other future bacteriophages that try to infect them the same way cannot. This blending of genes is beneficial for both organisms because the host gains some immunity against other bacteriophages, while the bacteriophage is able to perpetuate its genes within that now more complex but better defended organism. So it's an evolution, genetic competition, survival of the fittest sort of relationship. About 50% of the bacteria we have gene sequenced up to 2018, when the last study on this topic was conducted, contain these CRISPR DNA sequences, and about 90% of sequenced archaea contain the same. CRISPR-associated protein 9, often shorthanded as CRISPR-Cas9, is an enzyme, a biological catalyst, that allows entities that contain CRISPR sequences to use those sequences to identify and cut out specific snippets of DNA. And the discovery of this enzyme, and the utilization of it as a tool for scientists, and the techniques required to toolify it, earned the folks who developed those things the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2020, and went on to spark a wave of new gene-related developments, as these things essentially allowed scientists to search for and destroy, but also seek out spots in genes and insert new gene sequences pretty much anywhere in an organism's genetic code which means CRISPR-Cas9 opened up the possibility of relatively cleanly editing an organism's genes for research, medical, or augmentation purposes. Now, that is a serious simplification of both what CRISPR is and how it was developed into a technology, a tool, that could be used as part of a larger collection of techniques for exploring and editing DNA sequences. But fundamental to this concept is understanding that despite being able to look at and sequence genes for a decently long time, we've never really been able to adjust them in this way, to add to or remove or edit them before, because these sequences are just really fragile and easy to damage. This tool, which is used in nature by bacteriophages and other microscopic beasties, as it turns out, gave us similar capabilities to what they enjoy, but we are able to use them differently. We are not trying to insert our genetic code into other organisms in order to perpetuate our species as part of those organisms. We've got all sorts of other priorities in mind. What I'd like to talk about today is a new wave of CRISPR-related developments 
and what they might mean for how we think about and interact with our genes and the genes of other species. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the MIT Technology Review, and it's entitled, Edits to a Cholesterol Gene Could Stop the Biggest Killer on Earth. This piece describes a new CRISPR-based application that had been previously tried in monkeys, but which recently was applied to its first human volunteer in New Zealand. That volunteer is the first ever human being to undergo DNA editing to lower their low-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels, also called LDL cholesterol, which is often shorthanded as the bad kind of cholesterol, which can dramatically increase a person's risk of heart disease and stroke. This trial is being conducted by a U.S.-based biotechnology company called Verve Therapeutics, and it involves injecting the volunteer, the test subject, with a type of CRISPR that utilizes what's called base editing, something that's never been done to a human before. Base editing was originally developed in 2016, and rather than cutting into genetic code to make edits, it substitutes a single DNA letter. Each genetic letter, C, G, A, and T, represents a compound called a nucleobase, and each of these nucleobases pairs with another nucleobase, and those pairs connect to each other and with other pairs above and below them in such a way that they create the now well-known double helix spiral of DNA strands. So when we talk about genetic letters, we are talking about those compounds. It substitutes a single DNA letter for another. So this 2016-era riff of CRISPR, base editing, allows scientists to replace one letter, one nucleobase, in that grand strand of base pairs that make up a DNA spiral. And that, in this case, should be enough to correct a misspelling, a mistranscription of genetic information, which you might also call a mutation. And this mutation causes some people to have a much higher chance of developing heart disease, strokes, and the like, because that single change in this genetic letter increases their levels of cholesterol, essentially doubling what they would otherwise have, an inherited condition called familial hypercholesterolemia, or FH. There are other treatments available for FH and other high-cholesterol-related conditions, but they tend to be either difficult to manage and maintain, requiring a significant change in diet and lifestyle, for instance, or they're very expensive and inconvenient and are generally not covered by insurance, as is the case with some daily pills that attempt to handle this condition, which can have serious side effects, and with newer biotech drugs that approach the problem using injections that must be administered twice a month at great cost. This CRISPR-based alternative, on the other hand, requires a single injection that edits a gene called PCSK9, which is where that genetic typo that causes all these LDL-related problems occurs. This treatment is moving quickly in terms of development, in part because it uses a technology very similar to what was utilized for the mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccines. It contains some instructions for genes that are wrapped up in nanoparticles, and those nanoparticles deliver those genetic instructions to where they need to be inside the patient's cells. In this case, those instructions say, make this protein that will edit this mistyped nucleobase in the patient's genes, 
and that protein then modifies their genetic information accordingly. The benefits of this approach are many-fold, including the relative cheapness of making this type of injection and the fact that it could be permanent. Folks who have their genes edited in this way may enjoy the benefits of that correction forever, rather than needing treatments for the rest of their lives. There are downsides, though, including the reality that there is currently no way to undo such edits. You could theoretically do the same thing in reverse, wrapping up new instructions for the body to make a protein that flips the relevant nucleobase back to where it was before, but there's a chance that if the original replacement of that typo didn't work out as planned, the correction wouldn't either, so the patient could be stuck with messed up genetic code for the rest of their lives with currently unknown consequences. There are also sometimes side effects associated with those nanoparticles that are used to deliver these instructions to the patient's cells, including things like muscle pain, especially in folks who are already taking other treatments for their LDL issues. These are relatively minor side effects, all things considered, but they're still worthy of consideration. That said, in the monkey experiments that preceded this human trial, the patients had their LDL levels reduced by 60%, and that effect has already lasted for more than a year without any signs of serious side effects, which is a good sign for the longevity of this type of treatment for this type of affliction. And while such treatments are currently fairly expensive because they are mostly one-offs produced for research purposes right now, they could scale up pretty rapidly, similar to what we saw with COVID-19 vaccines over the past few years, the price going down to a point where it could be feasible that everyone who wants such an injection and whose genetics justify it will have inexpensive access to one. This development is important for many reasons, but most fundamentally, it's important because heart disease is the primary cause of death globally. Some experts think that if you can keep LDL under control throughout a person's life, cardiovascular diseases will essentially disappear, and that could dramatically change health outcomes, and consequently, demographic destiny globally. People could live a lot longer and have hugely increased health spans. The amount of time that they're both alive and healthy and able to function and enjoy being alive rather than just being alive but not able to do much because of ever-present cardiovascular issues and issues caused by those issues. There's a chance, and this is something that the researchers involved in this and similar projects will almost never say out loud or even allude to at this point for reasons I'll get into in a moment, but there's a chance that this type of treatment could someday become available for everyone, not just those with relevant genetic mutations. Rather than correcting a DNA typo that increases cardiovascular-related issues, we could all get injections that knock our levels of LDL down a bit, so even if we're not at heightened gene-related risk of such issues, we would still be better off. Heart attacks and strokes basically disappearing from the human species entirely because the causes of such issues would have been taken care of at the genetic level. We'd be all but immune to such problems because we would process things like LDL differently after receiving our CRISPR-based injections. We could adjust our DNA so that all of us have the same benefits of the most genetically blessed in the human species, those changes implemented via this type of injection. There's also been recent success, which has led to a first round of clinical trials, which are currently ongoing, in treating severe sickle cell disease using this type of approach. 
and severe sickle cell disease is the consequence of an inherited genetic disorder that causes the body to produce misshapen red blood cells. There have been many efforts to tackle this and similar blood-related genetic disorders over the years, but CRISPR provided a means of targeting the gene sequences that tell the body to produce those misshapen red blood cells directly, correcting them so that they no longer do the thing that causes this disorder and thus causes so much pain and additional medical risk for those who have it. The folks behind that particular clinical trial have said that because it's been so successful, they believe a widely available genetic treatment for sickle cell will land sometime in the next three to five years, and similar processes will likely be developed for other, possibly most other, hereditary diseases as well, using similar approaches in the near future. This is a hot potato topic within the world of gene editing technologies, though, because of the understandable and arguably justified fear that once we open the door to genetic manipulation for non-medical purposes, not healing, not fixing something, not protecting people, but rather to, in some way, upgrade someone who's already relatively healthy, that opens the door to potential abuse and even arms races between governments wanting to make the cleverest scientists and strongest super soldiers, and class divides between normal, unaugmented humans and those who are able to afford genetic manipulations that allow them to live longer, be healthier, be more attractive, or stronger, or smarter, and in general have biological advantages in addition to the economic and social advantages they already enjoy. This is something that could potentially be quite cool and wonderful then, as it could help us become a more capable species. But because of how the world works today, and all the inequalities that pervade our systems of governance and social strata, it seems likely that even with the best of intentions by all those involved, the development of a genetics augmenting jab that would make us stronger or smarter or overall healthier could unintentionally lead to more divisions and inequities, similar to what we've seen with the recent deployment of COVID-19 vaccines and other such treatments, with the wealthy world having more available than they can use, and the poorer world receiving barely any at all. Thus, anytime the question of manipulating human genes comes up, so too does a whole lot of debate and tumult. This was perhaps most famously and recently seen back in late 2018 when a Chinese scientist named Ha Jiangkui announced he'd successfully edited the genomes of twin girls before they were born. He edited their embryos, which were then used to produce babies, and his edits, he claims, will make these twins immune to HIV. He disabled a gene called CCR5, which encodes a protein that allows HIV to enter human cells. This is a mutation, the disabling of this gene, that already naturally occurs in about 10% of Europeans, and that mutation helps those who have it fend off HIV infections. But the dual concerns here are that first, he undertook this experiment without going through the usual and legally required rigor that such experiments require, ensuring that the human subjects wouldn't come to any harm but also allowing outside observers to be present to check all the math and ensure that things are being done by the book. And because none of that was being done, there's no way to be certain he did what he said he did or that his actions will have the desired outcome without severe negative consequences. And second, this approach to editing doesn't just change the genes of one person. It changes what's called the human germline. 
It's not an adjustment to a single human. It's ostensibly, at least, an adjustment to all people who descend from that person from that point forward. This is a serious issue because changing the germline is not something you can take back, at least currently. If you make even a wonderful-seeming adjustment to the human germline, removing all possibility of future disease, let's say, that change could lead to all sorts of future complications, and we might not know about it for generations. Even lacking such complications, though, if you were to give this benefit, immunity to all disease, to one genetic lineage, that lineage, that family, would have huge advantages over all other families, all other genetic lineages, which again could amplify existing inequalities, and it would almost certainly be the wealthy and powerful who could afford and access such treatments, locking in those advantages potentially for all time. Now, many of those concerns and others related to this space are theoretical at this point. Even those germline editing concerns only apply to the offspring of people who have their genes thus edited. So while mass injections, the mass distribution of something wonderful-seeming like curing all disease via germline modification, could seriously impact the human species in a negative way at some point, either through social divisions or unwanted complications, it's unlikely that experimentation with it here and there will have that kind of globe-spanning impact. That said, one thing could lead to another, and it's thinkable that such a technique could someday be weaponized, changing the germline of everyone within the blast radius of a gas weapon, for instance, which could then permanently change the genetics, for the worse, of a whole region or nation or hemisphere. It seems like a big leap from one to the other, but medical advances of this kind have often, throughout history, led to weaponry advances as well. So it's not an unwarranted concern to worry that this type of development could someday lead to the weaponization of germline modifications that then weaken a whole hemisphere's immune system before the deployment of an orchestrated plague. Or they could render huge swaths of a population unable to procreate, winning the war through the depletion of one's enemy's numbers over the course of a generation or two without ever having to fire a weapon. Parallel to these human-focused gene adjustments, CRISPR is being used to manipulate the genes of other organisms with similarly contentious concerns and pushbacks, but also similar substantial potential. There are efforts in Australia to make sorghum, a cereal that's used in bread and alcohol and breakfast cereal worldwide, to make it more frost and heat tolerant, to lengthen its growing structure, to make it more healthy and delicious. The idea is to expand the reach of this cereal, which isn't as widely distributed around the world because of its current fairly lackluster taste profile and because it hasn't been as extensively engineered as wheat and corn, while also at the same time creating systems for altering it in the future when need be to account for the ever-changing climate, which is making it trickier to produce such products consistently at the moment, as planting seasons and even optimal latitudes are shifting seemingly by the year. We're also seeing CRISPR and CRISPR-like techniques utilized to make rice more salt-tolerant, to cause tomatoes to generate vitamin D when exposed to the sun, and to produce high amounts of gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA, which promotes relaxation and lowers blood pressure, the latter of which is already in stores in Japan. A slew of patents have been filed over the past handful of years related to CRISPR-based approaches to altering soybeans, corn, wheat, poblano peppers, potatoes, cannabis, the brassica plant, cotton, cucumber, carrots, watermelons, lettuce, bananas, and pretty much every other plant that is produced for some marketable purpose today. 
And all of these adjustments, some of which are already being undertaken, some of which are still just theoretical, come with the same risks we face when human gene tweaking. We could accidentally mess with the genetic lineage of such products or create one type of really great tomato and then stop planting all of the other ones, only to find in a generation or two that there's something horribly wrong that we missed in that new super tomato. And that's part of this process of development, trying to figure out the downsides to these tweaks, even as we try to imagine ever better upgrades that might allow us to feed more people, less expensively, and in a way that doesn't disturb the balance of the many ecosystems that rely upon these plants and upon which these plants rely. We're standing at the precipice of some potentially really dramatic and amazing breakthroughs that could change the entire interconnected global healthcare industry and perhaps even change what it means to be healthy and to receive such care. If everything we need, more or less, eventually came in an injection that tweaked our genes to health-related perfection, our sense of what healthcare means would probably change pretty dramatically. We might also be able to upend many of the global inequities and disparities related to food pretty quickly if we started to plant super crops widely, allowing us to use less land for the same amount of output, allowing us to improve the quality of the soil rather than diminishing it with our agriculture, to use fewer chemical fertilizers, to produce more of the vitamins and nutrients we need in foods that we actually consume, and to produce food that travels well and tastes good to different regional palates to improve the overall flavor of things that we're growing, even while making these things more efficient and healthy. The sky is the limit. We're also looking down the barrel of quite a few new risks associated with these sorts of developments, though. And some of those risks are genetic and biological in nature. Some are societal. They only really exist because of the imperfections and inequities in our current systems. And some are unknowns, things we haven't run into yet and would probably have trouble even imagining because they're beyond our current capacity to ken. We don't know what we don't know, and thus can't concretely predict what might happen as a consequence of all those next-step unknowns and the secondary and tertiary effects of them. In the next few years, we'll likely see a steady drip of novel services and products stemming from CRISPR and CRISPR-like technologies, and it's going to be the effort of the next several decades to sort out which of these are worth the trade-offs and what we might tweak more holistically so that we benefit from more of the pros and suffer fewer cons. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism by Amanda Montell. This will be an uncomfortable read for some people because a lot of the verbal trickery, a lot of the things that manipulate us and manipulate others into joining cults and other types of fanatical organizations are things that also manipulate us into liking certain things, joining certain communities or groups. We are constantly having our sense of tribal affiliation and our sense of self tweaked by people who are able to communicate certain ideas to us in the right way. And this book is a great way to understand then how people get sucked into conspiracy theories and true crime and groups that from the outside seem to be obviously harmful to them or that change them in some way that's not necessarily to their benefit but is beneficial to the group or brand in question. 
but it also takes a look at how those lines tend to blur and how we can be pushed to extremism and extreme ways of thinking and behaving despite being very clever, sensible, reasonable people in general. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Cultish by Amanda Montell. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all of my projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and the like. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.